Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. COVID-19 cases in China are spiraling to record highs, just as the country was beginning to commit to easing on lockdowns. Frustration is growing, both among its population and in the international community. After a very successful for Xi Jinping party conference, in which he was essentially confirmed as ruler for life if he wants to be, it feels like things in China are beginning to unravel. Why does it matter? Because China is the world's second largest economy, by some measures the largest. It is certainly the world's largest exporter by some distance and is increasingly vital as an important too. So a growing Chinese economy is key to global economic recovery. My guest today is the former chief economist at UBS, research associate at the China Centre of Oxford University and at SOAS in London, and the author of several books, including Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. Welcome to the bunker, George Magnus. Thank you so much. George, Nomura Bank estimates that COVID restrictions are affecting areas responsible for one-fifth of China's gross domestic product. Why is this of international concern? Principally because China was kind of first into COVID and also now seems to be kind of last out. And the reason for that, of course, is its uh, so-called zero COVID policies, which have attracted a lot of attention worldwide, because the impact of these policies so far has been pretty draconian in terms of shutting down the Chinese economy, for example, in kind of May and June of this year, when Shanghai was one of the bigger cities that was uh, affected. Now, the same sort of thing with winter approaching seems to be going on again with some nuances. But we're all kind of, I think, worried or thinking a lot about what's going on in China, simply for the reasons you said at the beginning of this package, which is, you know, it's a, it's a huge economy. It has a major impact on trade and international economic relations. So, yeah, if it was a small place, we probably wouldn't care too much about it. But mm-hmm. uh, because it's so big, it matters a lot. I saw a recent interview with you, I think maybe Deutsche Welle, where you talked about China's mounting burden of debt. And this was very strange for me to hear, since China is also one of the largest state players in terms of lending. It is the second largest holder of U.S. public debt. It bailed out several Eurozone economies. I know this from my Greek experience at home, the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa. How has it ended up in trouble over its own debt? Well, it all began, as they say, probably around 2009, 2010 in the wake of the financial crisis, which actually China avoided. You know, there was no Lehman's kind of crisis in China. Yeah. And they spent a lot of money. I mean, they authorized the the, the lending, shall we say, of about 14% of their national income at the time, which was a lot smaller than it is. An enormous amount. A big amount, but obviously a lot smaller than it is today. But they authorized the, the, the lending of a lot of money to basically kickstart their economy, which had been affected by export orders drying up from the kind of Western world, really. But that seemed to spark a kind of a lending or borrowing frenzy by state enterprises and by local and provincial governments in China, which have a very, very important role to play in terms of 
delivering economic outcomes, much more significant, shall we say, than local authorities do in the United Kingdom. And this debt frenzy, this borrowing frenzy, really coincided with a point where China was basically running out of options in terms of its traditional engines, shall we say, of economic growth. So debt basically became a substitute. And it's not always a bad thing when countries borrow to to grow or to, to invest. But there does come a point usually when the borrowing that takes place does not generate the returns which pay for the debt, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. In that case, what happens is countries just get deeper and deeper into debt, which they're going to find really, really difficult to service and repay. And that's why China is in a bit of a quandary right now. Mm. So back in those days, I remember reading a lot of pieces that basically put forward the theory that China was starting to build its domestic demand from a sort of growing middle class. And this was seen as a replacement for this falling export demand. But large Chinese companies now, like Alibaba, are announcing record losses. So is domestic demand collapsing too in China at the moment? Yes. And this is actually part of the problem which China is facing in the 2020s. So the kind of demand-driven, consumer-driven, service-producing industries, I mean, Alibaba is, you know, selling kind of e-commerce and Mm. and online services, that kind of part of the economy actually is a little bit in the doldrums. So the Chinese are very keen in doing reforms which basically are about, you know, small companies, regulatory red tape, tax cuts for companies, and so on and so forth. So all the kinds of things that we in the economics nerdy world talk about the supply side of the economy. China is very keen to kind of stimulate and to stir, Mm. but it's got a bit of a blind spot for the demand side of the economy and particularly for households and consumers. And uh, I think this is part of the reason that it's finding itself in in a very, very difficult situation where it can't really make those kind of next steps towards, you know, delivering another era or phase of um, elevated growth. China's economic woes are a drag anchor on global growth. But how big is the risk of actual contagion in the way we saw in 2008-2009 if this escalates? Are our financial markets, for instance, much more closely linked now? Not really. I think that, you know, the reason that we got into such a pickle in 2008-2009 was because we had a banking crisis, basically. Obviously, if the banking system, you know, collapses or, you know, seems to be on the kind of the, the cusp of an implosion, I mean, the whole veneer of society is at risk as we uh, as we came close to in 2008-09. But in China... All of the banks pretty much are, or most of them are state-owned. It's a state-run financial system. And so no major banks are going to be allowed to go bust. And the regulatory and supervisory authorities in China are able to kind of move assets and liabilities around the financial system in such a way, I think, as to avoid the risk of a major financial crisis in the way that we understood it. 
course, you never say never because things can always of, go of course, wrong. Of course. Yeah. But that's the most likely outcome is that there will be costs for China, but not like we paid in 2008-9, not in the same way. What about those foreign interventions that I mentioned at the top? What happens, for instance, to the, the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa, where the Chinese state got involved in a lot of lending for infrastructure projects for developing nations in the African continent? What happens to those projects if the money dries up? Yeah, so, you know, the sort of the heyday of the Belt and Road in terms of money flows, really, because most of the Belt and Road was Chinese banks lending to foreign countries to build infrastructure, which often Chinese state enterprises were, you know, solicited to come and do. But most of the flows were, were sort of financial flows. And these had their heyday in about 2014, 15, 16, maybe 17. They kind of then peaked. And then since really the pandemic started in 2020 and subsequently, these financial flows have really dwindled to basically a trickle. Some of this is due to the fact that the banks just don't have the money to lend anymore, or scrutiny is being exercised much more vigilantly. And some of it is, of course, because a lot of Belt and Road countries have run into debt problems themselves, which uh, has kind of led them to shy away a little bit from, from getting more involved with with, with borrowing from abroad. I have a slightly more difficult one for you now, and I will take wild speculation or instinct. She has been moving towards more authoritarianism and rigidity, I think visibly for some years now, as the Chinese economy has begun to struggle. Is that just correlation or is there a causal link? And which way is there a causal link? Is the increasing autocracy causing the economy to stutter? Or is the fact that there's less satisfaction about the economy stuttering that is making the party sort of tighten its grip on human rights? Well, I think my speculative answer to that is, in some respects, the Chinese Communist Party has never really been anything other than what you see. Having said that, there was obviously a period in the 1990s, well, 1980s, 90s and 2000s, when things certainly looked as though they were easing up. This was a kind of a mm. period when, you know, China was experimenting with things like private ownership, or privatization, I should say, it built out a proper housing market as we know it, rather than a housing welfare system, which is what they had before. And there was a whole kind of barrage of law that came into being, which substituted for top-down kind of random decision-making. So, you know, business had certainty, it had predictability, because even though the Chinese don't have the rule of law as we know it, they have lots of laws and you know, they have lots of rule by law, which actually gives businesses an opportunity or uh, circumstances in which they can plan and and uh, develop their, their business. So, I would say that really what's happened is not that the not that there's been a sort of a, a sudden change in the kind of chemistry of the party, but that since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, he certainly has had a view about or had a view about the loss of discipline and coherence in the party, which he wanted to rectify. He came to power at a time when China was starting to feel a little bit more confident and truculent about its role in Asia and in the world. 
And um, I suppose with all the things that have happened, you know, to do with COVID and Russia invading Ukraine mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, we've kind of come to a point really where where China's kind of authoritarianism or totalitarianism really it's politically driven and it's having deleterious effects on the way in which the economy works it's felt to me as a political commentator although of course these things are never articulated but you could sort of sense that China felt like it was the envy of some Western leaders, especially in the right wing of politics, I think. Here was this unchained capitalism without the sort of bothersome democracy that that usually goes with it, with it. Are we seeing the limits of that? I do think we are. I mean, I think it's often, you know, certainly in, in the United Kingdom, you know, the old chestnut that keeps cropping up is, you know, Heathrow expansion and, and uh, HS2, the high-speed rail project, you know, to the north of England and so on, that these things take absolutely ages for anybody to make a decision about. And even then, you know, it's subject to all sorts of planning regulations and you mm-hmm. know, local inquiries and what have you. Of course, in China, you don't have this. You know, if you want to build, you know, a kind of a new expressway through Mrs. Wong's back garden, you know, <laughs> just do it. Uh, so there's no question. I, I I jest really, just for the for the purpose of making. No, but you're right because Mrs. Wong's back garden belongs to you. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the point really is that obviously in an authoritarian system where the state and the party rule everything, decisions can be made and implemented with great efficiency. But it also means that bad decisions can be made with great efficiency too. And uh, I think what's happening, you know, certainly in the, well, up in the run up to the 2020s and now this decade, is that we are seeing a lot of bad decisions being made well, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Ukraine as well. I can't quite work that out in my head. There's too many moving parts because in one sense, obviously, the Ukraine situation is suppressing global recovery. But in another sense, China is getting lots of very cheap fuel, which keeps it very competitive internationally. Where do Chinese interests really lie on this, do you think? I don't think, to be honest, that there's any great love lost between China and Russia. I mean, they've had lots of friction. They actually went to war for a while, actually, quite a few, well, a few decades ago. But actually, uh, and there's a lot of kind of tension between them. Western Asia in the Stans, you know, the sort of Kazakhstan, uh, Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan and so on and so forth. And there's also a lot of commercial tension in the Russian kind of Far East where, you know, there's lots of kind of Chinese commercial and entrepreneurs hoovering up sort of business in, in Russia. But what I think we saw in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics in uh, February 2022, which was a summit meeting between President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, they came up with this sort of 5,000-word statement, which was to celebrate really what they claimed at the time was a friendship without limits. I mean, it's quite clear that I think there are limits, but China and Russia are joined at the hip in their unanimous opposition to the United States and in their perception, rightly or wrongly, that the West is in terminal decline. 
And I think that for the time being, we should expect that this kind of joined at the hip will survive. I mean, it may come apart at some point in the future, but pro tem, I think that China is pretty committed to standing by Vladimir Putin. We tend to talk of the Chinese economy. We talk about it almost entirely in terms of how it might affect us. But there is almost a billion and a half people there. I remember seeing daily pieces on the human suffering during the Eurozone crisis or when Venezuela went under. Why do we tend to maybe dehumanize the Chinese population a little bit in the West? I mean, how are things for them? Where is the the human interest in what's going on there? Well, I think that's a very good question. And we would be much wiser. And uh, I think we would all be better off if we understood and knew more about it. Unfortunately, most kind of journalists working for kind of Western media actually can't work in China anymore. So a lot of them actually have been either turfed out or have to do their work now, either from Hong Kong or from Taipei or, or from their home countries or Singapore. And that really is a terrible a kind of indictment of the way in which relations between China and the rest of the world have deteriorated. So you, you can't really report on anything in China very well anymore. It's not as easy to find things out because obviously COVID has meant that, you know, you, we can't go there. A lot of people, including myself, you know, we've not been to China for three years now and, you know, we don't really know when that will open up again. So it is quite difficult. However, having said that, we still do have the benefit of researchers who've you know spent years in Chinese cities or in the countryside who have written up their research uh, including in very very recent times detailing for example you know village life community life kind of the contrast between uh, shall we say the sort of go ahead middle class uh, uh, children of of parents in Shanghai and Shenzhen compared with for example the sort of cognitively impaired children that grow up in half the country in the countryside where schooling is inferior educational attainment is inferior economic mm-hmm. life is hard right so people in the coastal cities of china may have on average income per head like that in portugal but many many chinese including those that live in the countryside have income per head that's not much higher than a very poor latin american country now i was reading your book red flags and i i was about a third of the way through thinking this is really insightful stuff and also quite easy to digest. And then it was only at that point that I flicked back to the front and realized that you published that book in 2018. And that really blew my mind because at that time, China was seen as fairly unassailable. So you predicted a lot of what's going on now before most people did. So can I ask you to gaze into that very effective economic crystal ball and give me a few possible scenarios on how this plays on from here on in. Sure. I, I should actually add that the um, the paperback of the book, which came out in 2019, so a year later, had two extra chapters in it, actually, which might help readers to be more current. But of course, so much is going on in China almost you know, daily, <laughs> if not uh, at an even higher frequency. It's, yeah. it's hard to keep up. Anyway, but in direct answer to your question, 
I really think there are only kind of three outcomes for China over the next 10 to 15 years, shall we say. I mean, certainly as far as its economy is concerned. And politics is mm. obviously something else. So in many ways, I, I mean, China is very special because it happened to experience during the last 20 to 25 years, an extended period of double-digit expansion, which no other country yeah. has done. So in many ways, China you know, can claim to be unique. But in many other ways, it's just another emerging country. And it has a development model, which is not dissimilar from other development models that we have known and know how, how they work in the end or how they mm. evolve. So I think the three outcomes are as follows. Firstly, going from worst to best, okay the, okay, the worst outcome is that China doubles down on its existing obsession with building houses and infrastructure with debt that actually is not commercial and that there will be eventually a kind of a major reckoning in which China will not only have a very, very pedestrian growth rate, maybe about 2% or something like that. But it also you know, could be vulnerable to financial crises as well, which could set it back for like two or three years in one fell swoop. The middling outcome would be that China is wary of this reversion and kind of continues what it's doing, but in a kind of restrained way. And then in that case, I think China might have a more stable outlook, still a very, very low growth outlook, and one yeah. which is, you know, subject to kind of interruption, but it becomes a bit of a kind of a hum-ho story and, and, mm. and the kind of economic ambition which it has, I think, would probably not be realizable. And then the best case because sorry, can I can I ask because you said that it has a and I agree in many ways it has a very similar profile to sort of other emerging or developing economies, but it has a really different population profile in that most developing economies have a very young population. China has a really old population, doesn't it? It does. And in fact, I mean, this is a sort of an overlay on these kind of three scenarios that I'm laying out. Yeah. The overlay is that China is the fastest aging country on the planet, not the oldest, which is Japan, but it's aging faster than any other country. So by 2040, 2050, on most metrics, China will be a much older country, for example, than the United States. So it's got a declining labor force. It's got a rapidly growing aging population. The dependency of the older population on a smaller labor force means huge kind of economic and financial costs, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, this, yeah. Is, a, this is definitely a kind of a, a negative point, which a lot of countries in yeah. Asia, Africa, South America do not yet have. And the best case outcome is reform, right? So the, the best case is that China says, you know, this development model isn't really working anymore. What we need to do is we need to try to redistribute. A lot of economic issues come around to distribution, as we know in the UK and other countries as well. So the best case outcome is that China decides that the model needs to be changed. It needs to open up its service producing industries. It needs to champion the cause of a more vibrant and dynamic consumer and redistribute money, basically, not just from the rich to the poor, but also from the state sector to the private sector, uh, which is more mm. entrepreneurial, more productive, more dynamic, and so on. 
But of course, to do that, particularly in the 2020s, you have to consider that there has to be huge political reform as well. And that's just not going to happen. Certainly not under Xi Jinping. You never say never, because obviously politics can change in ways that we sometimes fail to predict. But for the moment, I think that China is a bit stuck between options one and two. George Magnus, thank you for letting me um, pick your enormous brain for 20 minutes. You're very kind. Thank you. Remember, if you want more in-depth analysis like this, you can support us on the funding platform Patreon from as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every podcast early and with no ads. Nobody does what we do, so help us keep doing it. I leave you with George Magnus's words from a recent article. For more than three decades, the global community was defined by unbridled integration and unprecedented interdependence. Neither political spats nor localized wars could slow the globalization train. Markets were markets, business was business, and multinational firms became more multinational. Not anymore. In this new era of strategic competition, disengagement is the order of the day. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gobertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor was Andrew Harrison, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.